Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. I actually have the pleasure of of being the last one to come in on this message series of who I want to be. So over the past few weeks, we've had a handful of the staff up here kind of sharing with you who they want to be as it relates to a character or some characteristic that we would find in Scripture. And so the first week, Pastor Don came up here and he shared with us that he wanted to be someone who loved Jesus. And he, and he prefaced that in, God talks about us not being lukewarm and that he would spit us out of his mouth if we were lukewarm, but that he wanted to be someone who was so on fire for Jesus and he's not lukewarm and that he wanted to encourage us to do the same. The week after that, we had Pastor Mike come up and he talked about Cleopas, who's just a character, as Mike said, you find him in scripture, he's, he's just kind of, um, kind of glanced over, but basically Cleopas had an encounter with Jesus that transformed his life. And in that transformation, he went out and transformed lives as a result. And that he was encouraging us as, again, a family, that we would desire to do that. That we would have that transforming situation in our lives that we would want to then go out and see other lives transformed for Jesus. After that Sunday, we had Mike up again as well with our children's director, Kelly. And they shared with us who they wanted to be as it related to being a good parent. And in that, they shared some of the principles and practices that we found in Scripture and principles and practices that they found to be effective for them and hoping to, you know, again, instill some wisdom on us that we can use to help be better parents ourselves. After um, Pastor Mike and Kelly, we had Pastor Hunter come up, and he shared with us that he wanted to be bold in his faith. And in that, he shared about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that they were asked to bow before a king. And in their boldness and in their faith, they said, we will not bow to an earthly king, that we, we surrender to God. And even if God does not rescue us from that, we're, we are going to be bold and know that, that he is our God and we will serve him only. And so last week, kind of catching up here, we had our women's ministry director, Jody, up here. And she shared... What she, who she wanted to be, and that looked like she wanted to be Bible literate. And basically, out of a, a verse in Matthew, Jesus shared with, with us that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. And Jody kind of came at it as, we tend to be on one end of that spectrum. Sometimes we're on the end where we, we love God with all of our heart, but we're not doing so well with loving God with our mind, and that there needs to be a good balance. And so she kind of spoke into that and that we need to be in Scripture. We need to be digging into the Word and finding what God says about how we're to live our lives. And I'm going to expound a little bit on that today as I'm sharing with you who I want to be. When I was going through this, I came to the conclusion that for me, I, it's, it's not, it, is a, it is a character in the Bible, but I want to talk through who I want to be as it relates to going through the fires of sorrow. So in the dictionary... The definition of sorrow is a feeling of deep distress caused by loss, disappointment, or other misfortune caused by myself or oneself or others. 
So again, that's a feeling of deep distress caused by loss, disappointment, distress, or other misfortune caused by myself or others. When Amy and I moved to Strasbourg, it was December of 2003. We, we bought our house here in Coyote Ridge, but we ended up moving in the, into the home in January of 2004. And it wasn't but a couple days after we move in that Amy one morning shares with me that we will be expecting our first child, Keegan, in August of that year. And so um, that kind of presented an, a problem. It was a beautiful thing to know that we were going to be expecting a child. But the problem was both Amy and I were working and we were teachers. And I'm sure there's some of you in, in here who, have, who are teachers and know that that's not necessarily a large income but we had, we had agreed beforehand that Amy would stay home with the kids once we had kids, and she would raise them. And then that I would be doing whatever work necessary to provide for the family. So at that time, I was a teacher. I was volunteering over at the fire department in Strasburg here. And, I, and we had to come to the conclusion, what was, what was this going to look like? What was the future going to look like for us as a young couple uh, expecting a child and in a new home with a mortgage payment? So while I was at the fire department, some of the fire department, some of those that were at the fire department share with me how they were bivocational. They have the, the schedule where they were allowed, they worked three days for the fire department and then they would do some kind of side hustle on the, the remaining four days. And to me, that, that appealed to me at the time. So I thought, well, you know what? I'll go back to doing construction, which is what I did going through college, and then maybe I'll apply to be a fire, firefighter because it, 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 it served two things. One, it, it served that it, it was my heart. I love helping people. I love serving people. And it would help us financially. So I applied to the city of Aurora. Now, there's a process in applying for the fire department. The first part of the process is you have to submit an application. And in that application, you need your DMV records. And clearly, the city of Aurora doesn't think it's important to be able to drive fast to an emergency as I found out uh, that my seven speeding tickets did not allow me to be in any further process of this application. So I kind of took it as a blow. I thought, you know what? No, I, I could speed to these emergencies. This is ridiculous. But, but I just let it be. And, and, and we were going through this. I was doing construction. I had started a business. We were, we were really struggling financially. And a couple years later, the city of Denver was hiring. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to submit my application to the city of Denver. Some of these tickets are gone, so maybe I'll get past that part. So I submitted the application, got past that part, went in, took the written test, and quickly received a, a letter saying that they would not allow me to move along in the application process. And that was the second blow. Amy and I were struggling terribly financially and I thought that this was going to be the answer and it didn't happen to be and this was this was what would have been the greatest sorrow in my young life at, up to this point but then but then life has its way of saying that that's, that's that's not how it stops right in October of 2015 I got a call my dad had informed me that he had been diagnosed with cancer um, it, it hit me tremendously and it was right before we were going on a staff retreat as, as the staff here at Mountain View Fellowship. And I had the pleasure of actually going to the hospital before we went on the staff retreat. And, and Titus and Kelly were with Amy and myself in the car. And, and Titus was able to come into 
into the hospital with me to talk to my dad and pray with him. Um, and he was there, what I see now as a huge, huge moral support for me. As Titus had just recently gone through something similar with his dad. And it was, it was huge. But in that, I was praying. I was praying to God. These doctors, they give a diagnosis. At this point, they said that my dad had six to nine months to live. And I said, God, you are bigger than that. I know the doctors have the, their medical data, and that they say dad's going to die in six to nine months. But you can change this. You can make something different. He can go through chemotherapy. He can do whatever necessary, but that you can, you can supernaturally heal my dad. We went to the staff retreat, came back. I went back in to visit with my dad, and, and in this visit, he informed me that the doctors, he had gone to the doctor six months ago in April, prior and gone to, to get a CAT scan. And in that CAT scan, they had seen that he had already had the cancer. But they didn't, they didn't notice it in April. But looking back now here in October, they say, hey, that cancer existed in April. Your six to nine months is now two to three months. So this is October. Again, I prayed. And my desire and my wills and this, and this sorrow that I was suffering through I prayed that God would redeem this situation and that God would, would allow me to have years with my dad. You see, my dad was, was gone from the time I was 9 to 23. And, and he would come back for certain events, graduations and such, but I didn't get to bond with my dad. But I was starting to do that. Here I am now, older, having opportunities to work on my car, to just sit down and have a drink with my dad and just enjoy being around my dad. And I wanted more of that. But God didn't answer my prayer that way. No, you see, my dad actually went to be with God in the following month of November, um, shortly after the prognosis. And so my, my sorrow in my prayer, it wasn't answered in that time. And I know for some of you, you've experienced some of this. I've given like an example of from, you know, a job, a job loss maybe that some of you have gone through. Or maybe you have have some broken relationships that that have kind of brought sorrow upon you, and maybe even a frightening prognosis. Um, but but my, my desire today is to, to just give some truths that I've found in Scripture, and I've found as I've been walking with God through my relationship with Him. Um, hopefully you guys brought your Bibles this morning. If not, that's all right. We've had guys standing up back there for the last 15 minutes while I'm talking, but Please, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hands. They'll be happy to give it to you. And if you don't have one at home, put your name in this. This is our gift to you. We want you to have this. And, and we want you to have it for a reason. It's not to necessarily entice you to come back. Of course, we would like that. But most importantly, this is the foundation. This is the bedrock that we, that we base our faith on. This is what we, we ascribe to, not only here at Mountain View, but as believers that this is where we find the truths that we then get to apply to our lives. So as you, as you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn to Genesis 29, 31 to 35. And as you turn there, I'm going to go ahead and give kind of a recap and some context that lead us up to this story. We'll land in those verses, but I want to do um, just a little bit of, of history so that we can kind of understand what leads into this situation that we find ourselves in chapter 29, verses 31 to 35. So I want to start in chapter 25 of Genesis, and this is where it picks up with Isaac and Rebekah. And, and Isaac and Rebekah, they're without child at this point. And so Isaac 
goes before God and he petitions to him. He says, God, please allow Rebecca to be with child. And true to God's nature, similar to when we ask for things to God and we don't necessarily get the answer, much like the answer I didn't get for the fire department or for my dad, God did answer Isaac's prayer, but he didn't answer as Isaac prayed. God not only gave Rebecca a child, but Rebecca found herself pregnant with twins. So much so that this, there was this toiling going on in her belly as she's pregnant in her, in her womb to where she finally petitions to God. She's, she says, what's going on? Why is this happening? At which point God says, there are two nations inside you. And do you know that the older one is going to serve the younger one? And it's going to be from the time they're born to the time they die. And, and that tends to unfold to God's truth. So Rebecca is in labor, and the first child is born. And, and Genesis tells us that first child is red and super hairy. And so naturally, Rebecca names that child Esau. And in, in, and in its culture, the, the names have significance. They usually are, are something to indicate an attribute about the person or maybe even something prophetic about the person but in this case it was his physical appearance Esau was red and super hairy now the second child was born shortly after so shortly that he was actually grasping the heel of Esau and as a result Rebecca named him Jacob and Jacob means the grasper of heel pretty straightforward or the supplanter and we see how some of that supplanting happens through the synopsis fast forward to they're now young adults and, and we read that, that Esau has become a, a phenomenal hunter, a, a woodsman. And, and it says in Genesis that he was, he was so good at this and that his father Isaac loved the taste of wild game so much that Isaac loved Esau. And that's exactly how it says, Isaac loved Esau. And then Jacob, on the other hand, was happy and content to be at home, to be in the tents, to, to make food, to be around the mom. And, then, and, then, and so Genesis tells us that Rebekah loves Jacob. So here's the beginning of this, this toiling, or, or actually the continuation of the toiling. So now we fast forward a little bit more to where Isaac is older in age. And he's, he's at a point where his, his visibility is, is next to nothing. And at this point, he, said, he calls his son Esau in. Or, I'm sorry, no, let me back up. So Esau, this phenomenal hunter, he comes in from a hunt one day, and he tells his son, his brother Jacob, who's been cooking something, he can smell it. He says, I'm famished. Let me have some of your, your stew or some of this meal that you're making. At which point, Jacob says, well, of course, you can have some of it, but you need to swear an oath to me. I want you to tell me that I get your birthright. And that birthright basically is, as the firstborn son, you would get a double inheritance. You would get a double portion of whatever the inheritance is. And Esau, who's apparently so famished and, and acting in the moment, says, that's fine. I'm, I'm about to die. I just want to eat. So Esau trades his, his birthright for a bowl of soup. And again, now fast forward to where Isaac calls him in to give him his blessing. And Esau comes in. Isaac tells him, hey, I want you to go out, hunt some wild game, bring it back, prepare the meal that I love, and then I'm going to give you my blessing. Rebecca overhears this and calls her beloved son Jacob in and says, hey, Esau's about to get that blessing, and I know you're supposed to get it, so this is what's going to happen. You go out, you get a couple young goats, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to prepare a meal the way that your father likes it, and then I'm going to have you go in, and I'm going to have you receive the blessing that was meant for Esau. And Jacob says, ah, I'm not too sure about this, mom. I don't know if you noticed but you did name him Esau, which means super hairy, and I'm not. 
I don't think that dad's going to be convinced that I'm, that I'm my brother. So then she develops this plan to, to more that, hey, okay, not only are we going to bring the meal in, I want you to go ahead and put on some of his best clothes, and then I'm going to cover any leftover skin with the goat skin so that your father would, would think that you are Esau. So Jacob goes in, dressed as such, with the goat fur on the back of his hands and the back of his neck, gives his father the meal and says, Father, I'm here for my blessing. Well, Isaac isn't convinced necessarily that it is Jacob or Esau. So he's asking him questions. And, and, and at finally, at some point, he says, okay, I, it's Esau. I'm going to give you my blessing. So he gives Jacob the blessing that's meant for Esau. And it's not much time after that that Esau comes in and he wants his blessing. He's, he's killed that wild game. He's prepared the food and he's ready for his blessing. And he goes in and his father Isaac tells him, I'm sorry, who are you? I just gave the blessing. And as you can imagine, Esau is enraged at this point. He's given away his birthright. Jacob stole his blessing. He's so enraged that he even says, right now I'm mourning my dad's death. But when I'm done with this, I'm going to kill you, Jacob. Well, their mom, Rebecca, overhears this. And she's not comfortable with that either. She's actually, she's afraid for her beloved son's life. So she says, you know what, Jacob? I want you to flee to my brother Laban's land, Padamaran. I want you to flee there and find a wife. Go there until it smooths over, then you can come back. So naturally, Jacob listens to his mom, flees to her brother's land, Padamaran, and in the process, he comes and finds himself upon a well. He's there, and he, he, he sees there's three shepherds out there. They're watering sheep, and he asks them, do any of you guys know Laban? At which point, they say, yes, we know Laban. Not only do we know Laban, but here comes his daughter, Rachel. So Jacob, naturally, confronts Rachel and says, hey, I happen to be a relative of yours. Your father's mother, your father's sister is my mother. Of which she runs back and tells her father, hey, our our relative Jacob is here. Let's welcome him in. So they welcome Jacob in. They take him home. He starts to work for his uncle Laban. But his uncle Laban says, hey, you can't work for free. Name the terms for what you you wish to get in, in this labor that you're giving me. And so Jacob says, I'll, I'll give you seven years of labor for your daughter Rachel's hand in marriage, of which Laban is happy to oblige. So Jacob works seven years, goes to Laban, says, all right, I'm ready for Rachel's hand in marriage. I, I, want to, I want to make love to my wife. And Laban says, all right, let's have a feast. Let's have a party. So there's a wedding feast and a wedding party that day. That evening comes. Jacob is in, in the wedding tent, if you will. And Laban brings the bride to him. The following morning, Jacob wakes up to quite a surprise. It's not Rachel in there. As a matter of fact, it's her sister Leah. And now it's Jacob's turn to be, enra- or turn to be enraged. He had made an arrangement to, to marry Rachel, and his uncle Laban had basically pulled one over on him. So he goes to Laban and says, hey, wait a minute. I made the agreement that I would work seven years, and I get your daughter Rachel handed in marriage. Laban says, that's not the case here. In our culture, we marry off the oldest first. So you, you get Leah, but I'll make you a deal. You give me seven more years, and you finish out this, this week with Leah, and you can have Rachel, but I want seven more years of labor from you. So his love for Rachel is so much that he agrees to those terms. And that's where we, that we end up landing in Genesis 29, 31 to 35. So I want to read that with you guys. If you're there, everybody there? It says, Jacob's many children... When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, 
He enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has noticed my misery, and now my husband will love me. She soon became pregnant again and gave birth to another son. She named him Simeon, for she said, The Lord heard that I was unloved, and she has given me another son. Then she became pregnant a third time and gave birth to another son. She named him Levi, for she said, Surely this time my husband will feel affection for me, since I have given him three sons. Once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Judah, for she said, Now I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children. So a quick aside here. There's been enough sorrow and disappointment even leading up to this point for all the characters involved. But, but I'm landing on these verses because I want to end up being like Leah. And as, as we walk through this, you'll see why I want to be like Leah. But, but Leah here, it's, it, it's, I can say with confidence that she's experiencing sorrow. There are, there are translations that actually say, in this one it says, Leah was unloved. There are translations that actually say, Leah was hated. That's nothing that anybody of us would ever desire or want, that we would be hated or unloved. But this is certainly the case with Leah, and she's betrothed to this situation. Right? So with that, the Lord saw that she was hated, and I want you guys to actually step into her shoes in this moment that she's been hated and unloved. I want you to try to imagine the emotions that she's going through, not just in this moment. Um, step back a little bit to where Jacob is working seven years, and she knows that he's doing that for her sister Rachel. And, and maybe at this point, during this time, her dad's talking to her about, hey, when this happens, you're gonna, I'm going to switch you for her, and you're going to end up getting married to him. Just imagine how you would feel in that circumstance. Imagine how you might feel always being in the shadow of an older sister. Some of you might have had that happen. And this was the case with Leah, who potentially was in the shadow of her older sister. I, I didn't say this part earlier, but I want to read it. It says, when it's describing Laban's daughters, it says, Now Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah. The younger one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes, but Rachel, she had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. So naturally, Jacob loves Rachel. Not Leah, but Leah's in this circumstance regardless. And, and for me, again, as I was talking earlier, when, when we're going through these situations of sorrow, I find it best to, to go to Scripture, to look in the Word as to what God, what God has to say regarding that. And so in Psalms 34, 18, David writes to us, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Bearing that verse in mind, I'm going to pick up in 32 again. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has noticed my misery, and now my husband will love me. In this verse, Leah says, The Lord has noticed my misery. Family, know that when you're in sorrow, God sees your misery. And he provides for you in that circumstance. God sees your misery. As Leah proclaims, the Lord has noticed my misery. In Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 3, I want to read to you. It says, Fear not, 
For I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, and you sh- when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now I want to point out a few things here. The first thing, it says, when you pass through fire, when you pass through waters, and when you go through the rivers, that's the, that's the part that says we're going to go, go through sorrow. Every one of us will experience sorrow along the continuum from something that might be perceived as not so large to something that some would say definitely is worth severe sorrow. But, but know that you're go- this is going to happen. But God gives us some promises in this. In, this in, in Isaiah, he says, when you pass through those waters... I will be with you. And when you go through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. In Leah's case, it was God providing her with the firstborn son. And that's a significant thing in that culture, to have the firstborn son. Now, some of, the, some of the meaning behind that is that he gets to be the one who will take over the family endeavors. He takes over the family name. He gets the blessing. He gets the birthright. And so in Leah's mind, at this point, God's answering her prayers. Picking up in 33, she soon became pregnant again and gave birth to another son. And she named him Simeon. For she said, the Lord heard that I was unloved and has given me another son. Simeon means he has heard. Again, verse 32, God sees your misery. Verse 33, God hears your misery. I want to read John 5, 14. It says, and we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. There's a caveat here. And we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. So that kind of flips it on its head. It's not what pleases us, right? So in this, we have to, 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 to break it down to its bare bones and ask, how, how do we know what pleases God? And again, back to our foundation. We know what pleases God when we spend time in his word. Like, like our women's ministry director, Jody, talked about last week. Become Bible literate. You see what God desires, what God pleases. And when you know that, you know what breaks God's heart. You know what pleases him because you see it in Scripture. And at that point, you get to pray with confidence that he's going to hear you because you're praying for the things that pleases him. I think Leah believes that having more children will bring her Jacob's affection. And, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to juxtapose that with my story with my dad. At the time he was diagnosed, my prayer was that, that God would miraculously heal him. That there would be supernatural healing, that he would make it to my boys' graduations. And not that that didn't necessarily please God, but I think that when I would strip it down, it was praying for what pleased me. 
And I think sometimes maybe we can, you can relate to that. That our prayers tend to take the form of what pleases us. But we read here that we need to be praying for the things that please him. In verse 34, Then she became pregnant a third time and gave birth to another son. She named him Levi, for she said, Surely this time my husband will feel affection for me, since I have given him three sons. So the name Levi in this one means joined in harmony. Just a quick side note. I'm just going to give you one nugget here. This is her third son. I think it's safe to say that Leah's getting at least a little bit of affection from Jacob at this point. But I don't know. I could be wrong at this. But needless to say, she's naming him Levi, which means join in harmony. And if I'm honest, I think through her life, she's looking for anybody that would be joined in harmony to her. And, and she's looking for that answer possibly in Jacob. But I find that as we read into the next verse, that, that it's more so that she's becoming joined in harmony to God. So if you look at the verse 35, once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Judah, for she said, Now I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children. The name Judah means praise. And Leah made that proclamation at this point. Now I will praise the Lord. This doesn't indicate that Leah will not experience any more sorrow or be subject to any more sorrowful situations. Actually, on the contrary, life will continue to be riddled with it. If you read further in Genesis, you see that she does continue to be in situations of sorrow. However, I believe at this point in, 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 in Genesis that she's resolving within herself to surrender to God's sovereignty. That she's saying, I know that God is good and worthy of praise. Which brings me to a couple application points. The first one being my praise or my joy, your praise or your joy. It's not contingent on your circumstance. You see, Paul writes to us in, in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 10. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Let me repeat that. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There's, there's, there's something critical here. Yet always rejoicing. Now, Paul, if anybody, had reason to be sorrowful. As a matter of fact, in that same book, chapter 12, Paul goes on to list some of those things that he happens to be sorrow or could be sorrowful for had he so chosen. One of them is that Paul had, been, had received 39 lashings five times. The Roman government declared that 40 lashings was the death sentence. Paul received 39 of them five times. Not only that, Paul was beaten with rods three times. Another terrible punishment. But beyond that, Paul was stoned and left for dead even once. And those are huge situations, circumstances that would be worthy of sorrow. And, he, and if you read chapter 12, he lists quite a few more. I'm just picking those three. However, Paul still makes the statement to the Corinthians, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrow is going to ebb and flow throughout all of our lives, but we need to become more like God 
and understand more clearly what God what pleases God. You see, Leah attested to this again through the proclamation that she made with the fourth child. There's, there's, there's even something critical here. It's her fourth child. I, first of all, I have two boys. And, and I don't know that I could make that proclamation, now I will praise the Lord, if I had four kids, just based on the work that is involved in raising kids. Leah was able to do that, but beyond that, it was, it was not the first child that she was able to get through this sorrow, or the second child, or the third child for that matter. But on the fourth child, she resolved to say, now I will praise the Lord. It took me two years to get through the sorrow of my dad's passing. And I'm sure for some of you that you're experiencing that, and maybe you're in the throes of it. But for me personally, it took two years. And, and, I, and I realized that I wanted to pray for, God, for my dad's healing at that time. But now in hindsight, God has shown me where he is sovereign. So with my dad's passing, as I said earlier, he is spending eternity with our Heavenly Father. And I get to someday do that as well. That's one aspect. But another aspect that came out of my dad's prognosis and cancer was that he was able to have conversations with people and family members that needed to happen. And I pray and I know that it pleases God that there will be restoration. There will be healing and that God will answer those prayers. And understand, this is not, again, sorrow is not something that's going to be cured and healed overnight. That God will take us through it. My second action point is, you may never know the significance of what you do for God, but what you do for God is never insignificant. In John 12, 27, Jesus is about to be crucified. He's about to endure brutal beatings and and an excruciating death sentence. But in this moment, Jesus is praying to his father. Now my soul's deeply troubled, should I pray? Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Jesus, knowing he was about to die on the cross, said, but this is the very reason I came. That's good news for us. It's that very reason that he came, that we have salvation, that we have the opportunity to have a Heavenly Father who will walk alongside us in our sorrow. Oswald Chambers writes, my utmost for his highest. And in that devotional, there's something that has stuck with me, especially in planning this message. He says, you can always recognize who has been through the fires of sorrow and received himself. And you know you can go to him in your moment of trouble and find that he has plenty of time for you. But if a person has not been through those fires of sorrow, he is apt to be contemptuous, having no respect or time for you, only turning you away. If you will receive yourself in the fires of sorrow, God will make you nourishment for others. So, family, like Leah, I want to be brought through those fires of sorrow such that I'm nourishment for others. And that's my prayer for you. That as you're dealing with sorrow, 
that you go to God and that you allow him to speak to you, to nourish you such that you would be nourishment to others. One thing in closing, again, my second action point is you may never know the significance of what you do for God, but what you do for God is never insignificant. You see, Leah named her fourth child Judah, which means praise, as I shared earlier, but there's more to it than that. In the last book of the Bible, which speaks of Jesus' second coming, he is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. See, Leah wished for Jacob's desire, but she got so much more. She got so much more significance. Leah is the direct bloodline of Christ. You see, Christ, as you look through that bloodline, it traces back to Leah, hence the, the designation that Jesus is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. So she might not have felt significance, maybe, in her relationship with Jacob. But when it came to her relationship with God, she had significance. Not only did she have significance, but she proclaimed, and I want this proclamation for you, God heard, God saw, and God answered. Thanks for joining us here at Mountain View Fellowship. We'd love the chance to meet you in person. We gather each Sunday at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 1955 Headlight Road in Strasburg, Colorado. If you aren't able to join us in person, we'll meet you right back here next week. God bless. Thank you.